listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. All right, well, let's get something out of the way first. Judges can be one of the darkest, depressing, and, I don't know, disturbing reads in the entire Bible at times. So I'll I'll get that out there. But Judges is far more than a collection of dark, cautionary stories. I'm calling this series Broken People, Faithful God. And I've had this series in the back burner actually for over a year. Just have never really felt like the time was right. But we began 2022 with a look at the book of Ruth, which was during this time period of Judges. And we just finished 1 Peter, 2 Peter, which referenced back to this stage of, of uh, Israel's history a couple times. And after, after holding on to this for a while, I really felt like now is the time to tackle these dark stories so that we can do two things. I want us to really focus on two things today and throughout this whole series. Number one, see our own human limitations. See our own failures. And then number two, see the faithful, loving God that we have. The character of God that still looks over us to this day, despite our own weaknesses, despite our own failures. He's there for us. So this is a book that reminds us that we are broken people left to ourselves. That's... That's just the way it is. But despite the patterns of sinful behavior that we often live in, we have a loving and faithful God who is ready and willing to restore us. That's who we just sang to. That's who we just sang about. That's why we're here today. Judges in many ways is a story of a prodigal son returning to a loving, gracious father. And it's really played out in living color. But the thing about the book of Judges is we don't usually like to put ourselves in the dark story. Am I right? I don't know about you, but from time to time, I enjoy watching a good thriller movie, all right? Just like an intense um, movie that makes you think, a movie that maybe it's even a little creepy. It gets you on the edge of your seat, and you don't really know where where it's going, how it's going to end. You know, it has that cliffhanger. Um, I, I love things like that from time to time. It's hard to find good ones, though, because so much of it is just trash. And, I mean, I'm not talking about a horror movie with gore that, you know, pure, keep your mind pure, don't go there, right? Last time I watched a horror movie, I was a senior in high school, and I literally just went home and read the Bible afterwards. I'm not even joking. Um, and I've, I've yet, I will never watch another one. But, but it's a good movie that actually puts you into this suspenseful, on-edge place. It's entertaining. But one thing that we wouldn't particularly enjoy is just inserting ourselves into that story. I mean, we know, no, don't walk down that dark, creepy hallway. Don't do that. Don't go explore this abandoned resort that's been vacant for 20 years. What are you doing? But to put yourself in that position is actually what I'm going to ask you to do as we go through the book of Judges here. We're going to insert ourselves into that dark story. This book, 
has, it really presents two challenges to you, all right? The first one, I'll tell you now, and the second one, we'll hold on till the end. But the first one is to actually see yourself in these stories. And if you don't look for your heart and look at your heart as you look at these people in the book of Judges, I'm going to be honest, it's not going to have the intended effect that God intended it to have. Either you're going to get all heady and holier than thou of like, oh, look at what they did and how, how could they be so bad and how could they be so terrible and look at me, you know, I, I don't do those things that they did. That's not going to help you, right? Of course not. Or it can be just really bo- boring history, unless you, unless you really like the history of God's people, um, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to avoid that angle too. Here's the biggest reason why you have to insert yourself in these dark stories that we're about to embark, embark on. The biggest reason is if you don't, you're going to shortchange yourself. And you're going to miss seeing the faithfulness of God and the grace of God that is always there for us. So the destructive nature of sin will be on full display, but every single time we're going to see the grace of God that is greater than our sin. So even with a difference of this gap of three millennia, there are parallels between our situation that we live in right now and the time of Judges. We live and work among a great variety of gods, not only those of formal religions, but also the gods of wealth and pleasure and fame and ideology and achievement. Our era can accurately be described by the phrase which sums up this book, Judges 21-25. Everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. So let's open to Judges 1 and start by reading the first four verses. If you're there already, good for you. Here we go, Judges 1. (laughs) After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. We'll just stop right there. Verse 1 starts with the death of Joshua, and the author is setting the stage for us to understand why we get to the point where we need judges. Joshua was God's chosen successor to Moses who led the people, the children of Israel into the promised land. He and Caleb were the only two men of the entire generation that had been rescued out of Egypt, that had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, who trusted God and remained faithful to him. So they were the only two to actually be able to taste and feel and see God coming through on his promise. The next few verses, all the way down to verse 18, are success stories of defeating and driving out the Canaanites. 
so, that the, so God's people could take the promised land. Now, this is where I'll pause for a second. I released an episode uh, this week in the Doxa Dialogue podcast called Colonizers and Crusaders. And it's about 30 minutes long. And it acts as a primer on some of the most difficult passages and dis- disturbing portions of this book. So God told the Israelites to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. And if they didn't comply, to execute every man, woman, and child. And a lot of people have a problem with this. Critics of the Bible have gotten a lot of mileage out of this. So I took a deep dive into that conversation. And if you haven't already listened to it, um, I went into great detail, way more than we're going to do here, about what was really going on with that. And, and that's really what I try to do with the podcast. I'll, I'll interview someone at times. We'll have a supplemental, supplementary teaching component that doesn't really fit into the worship service or into you know, community that you have with life groups during the week. But if you've, you haven't started listening to the podcast yet, I really encourage you to go check that out. I'll give you three bullet points from that podcast about what is going on here. Um, and I, again, I really went into detail and succinct. 30 minutes in that podcast. But number one, this was not about race or ethnicity. That, was, that was not, not, had nothing to do with it. Number two, this cleansing was not carried out on the basis of imperialistic expansion. There was no plundering going on. That was not allowed. And number three, this was divine judgment, not genocide. Now, if you're if you're still not convinced that you need to start inserting yourself into these stories, I want to mention one other thing here before we really dive into the text, and that is in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10, it recounts the events of the Exodus, and it tells us that all of these things took place as examples for us. Who's who's Peter writing to there? The church at Corinth, right? That we might not desire evil as they did. And right here in this season of Israel's history, it parallels the progressive sanctification journey that every believer of Christ is walking on. This is the first point that I have for you this morning. Number one, place your story into God's story. So where are you in a story like this and the stories that we're going to see in Judges? The answer is you're on every page. When God delivered Israel out of the slavery of Egypt, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 9, Hebrews 11, and other passages, just to name a few, they all teach that those stories are a picture of our salvation out of the bondage of sin, the slavery of sin. And it doesn't just end there either, the parallels. The wandering in the wilderness offers even more representation. You have the, you have the, Uh, cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, representing the the leading of the Holy Spirit as you're you're wandering through the wilderness. A lot of times, your Christian life, as we know it right now in this present day, is is like wandering through a wasteland. There's sin that corrupts. There's sinners around us, and we need to be led and driven by the Holy Spirit through that. And even the conquest into the promised land pictures the spiritual warfare battles that we face as we walk with Christ in our Christian life. The victory is already won in Christ. As you saw there, what did verse 2 say? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. 
Behold, I have given the land into his hand. The battle is won, okay? The victory is there. But we still have to, by faith, step forward and go out and have victory through his strength. We see all that with Joshua, and we are called to do the same. So with all of that said, Judges 1 chronicles now the progression of the nine tribes of Israel. How did they do? They were given this command by God to go out, drive out the inhabitants, take the promised land. The victory is won. Now it's your job to actually do this through my power and my strength. So how'd they do? The tribe of Judah, according to verse 2, is the first one to step out and go. And all the way up to verse 18, it's a catalog of success and victory. Starts off very good. Judah also captured Look, you can look at verse 18. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory. Wow, the Gaza Strip, is, Gaza Strip has been battled over for centuries, right? And Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And if we stopped right there, this would be great. But this, but this is not where it ends, right? Look at verse 19. We have a jarring wake-up call. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Uh-oh. That's, that's our first clue that something has gone array. The Lord was with the men of Judah, but they were unable to drive out the people of the plain because they had chariots of iron? So they... So they look at all the physical, the, the physical presence of the enemies, and they get scared. Now, I told you, you have to insert yourself into this story, right? Have you ever done that? Have, have, have I? Yeah, actually, I have. Come to think of it. This may be common sense. We don't have chariots of iron. They do. They are bigger. They are stronger. They have money. They have more money. They have more resources. I'm just not as talented as they are. So it's common sense, sure. But it's also faithless sense. Do you see that? The people of the tribe of Judah don't trust God. I mean, think about all the things. I mean, they do to a certain degree trust God, right? There's like this halfway obedience there. But when it really gets tough, they stop. So they don't secure their inheritance so they can worship God without compromise. And the remaining Canaanites will prove to be a thorn in their side for centuries to come. And you need to see something else that's very important as you implant yourself here into this text. Let's personalize this, right? I'm going to put a quote up on the screen for you. It's not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessing or from worshiping wholeheartedly. It's our lack of faith in his strength. That's the difference. When we rely on ourselves and we base our walk with God on our own calculations, instead of simply obeying and stepping out into the scary unknown, we find ourselves making decisions just like the tribe of Judah. This is halfway obedience, and Judges is going to show us where this ends. Where does it lead? Eventually, it takes you down on your knees. And the warning couldn't be any clearer to, any, to all of us. So can you think of a time in your life 
where you did the same thing, where common sense became faithless sense and you didn't follow the leading and the calling of God. How did that work out for you? Can you think of a time in your life when you were brave and you did step out in faith? Sounds like a life group question, doesn't it? <laughs> Lee, I think I just gave you a couple life group questions right there. <laughs> this is what God is calling all of us to do. He's calling us to believe and to trust that he is faithful. And even if it doesn't make sense, he will provide a way. It's his strength, not your lack of strength, that you need to focus on. Look at verse 20. Judges 1, verse 20. And Hebron was given to Caleb. So, okay, that was a bad verse, verse 19. But verse 20, we have another guy here, Caleb. What about Caleb? He's, he, he has been faithful to God for a very, very long time, right? I mean, he, he, him and Joshua, they were the only two that were still like alive in those wilderness years. What did Caleb do? He drove out from it three sons of Anak. This is a very short verse, but just stop and think about what this verse says. You have the tribe of Judah who just for 18 verses drove out these people, success story after success story after success story, and then they stop short. But you have the old guy, Caleb, who takes out the three younger sons. Isn't that awesome? There's a guy who believed God and was faithful to God to the very end, even in his old age. And there is something there for all of us. There really is. I, I love that we have a few older men in this church. To be honest, we don't have as many as I wish we had. I'm praying for more. But honestly, I think it's a reflection of our culture and our society. What happens to men? when they get older, far too often. And I'm preaching to myself here, okay? I, I, I think about this a lot. They don't finish well. What, retirement comes in, grandkids come in, like whatever, you get tired, you get old, you get cranky, you get bitter at all the things that this world used to have that doesn't have anymore. Like it's, I'm, I'm not trying to be funny, it's actually very sad, is it not? Like where are the men who are faithful to the very end, still conquering, still stepping out in faith, doing what seems to be impossible, taking out things that they shouldn't really even be worried about, but they can through God's strength. So even though we don't have a lot of those men, we have some, and thank God we do. I'm super thankful for you guys. Praying for more. As the years go on, we're going to have more, right? <laughs> because we're all going to age. <laughs> And by God's grace, I will be an older man like Caleb one day. That's one of my prayers, is that I finish strong like Caleb. That's a challenge to all of you. Yes. Yes, we will. We'll all get there. But men, are you with me on that? Can we do that? Next verse, verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites live with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Okay, we go right back to the failure. And from verse 21 down to the end of the chapter is one sad story of, of lack of faith after the next. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. 
Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Seko. Still a cool name though, Asher. We like your name. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And on and on it goes. The Amorites even pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. Yikes. We still love you, Dan, okay? All right. Yeah. <laughs> Look how God responds to his faithless, lackluster, half-heartedness of his people. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept and they called the name of that place Bochum and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now, a question you might be asking yourself right now is, why does it say the angel went up from Gilgal to Bochum? Verse 1 there. Details matter in the Bible, and they especially do in these stories in Judges. Surely the angel of the Lord doesn't live in Gilgal, right? What's going on here? Why is, it, why is this reference there? Well, if you go back to Joshua chapter 5, it was in Gilgal that the people made a covenant with God where he said in Joshua 5, 9, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Gilgal means literally to roll. And this was a place where God had forgiven their sin. He had bound them to himself as his people and entered into a relationship with them by grace, motivated by his own loving kindness. So when the angel comes from Gilgal, it's a reminder to the Israelites that they are saved by grace. They would remember that. They know that city. It's a reminder, as the angel says in Judges 2, verse 1, right there, the Lord brought you up out of Egypt. That's the reference. The Lord is a rescuing, promise-keeping God. He's a faithful God. To be honest, verse 19 of chapter 1 sounds very realistic. It sounds like you and I, more often than we care to admit. I can't do this. We can't do that. It's not realistic. We're just unable to. We don't have the resources. I don't have the money to give yet. I can't adopt this child. I can't foster this kid. I can't go over here and say that. I can't go to that place and do this hard thing. Eventually, you get to the point where you're forgetting that God saved you to do things like that. Even though the Lord was with them, they backed down and said, I can't. But this tells us they actually could. God wasn't expecting them to do it through their own strength, but to do it through his might. And what we see here from God's answer in chapter 2 is that when the tribe of Judah said, we cannot do it, they have chariots of iron, God says, you could have done it, but you chose not to. 
And it's worth asking yourself, where am I saying I can't, but God is saying you won't? Their failure to obey was based off of their own reason and what they thought were legitimate reasons, but it was not based at all on God's promises. Are you getting the sense that God is bigger and greater and mightier than us and he loves us and he will empower us through his Holy Spirit for us to do things that we never thought imaginable? Are you starting to see that in this text? God sees our won'ts as a failure to remember what he has done for us and what he's promised to do. So a lack of faith is really a failure to believe the gospel of what Jesus has done for you in your life. And that's why God calls these flimsy excuses. Because God is faithful. And then that same passage from the New Testament that I referenced earlier that points to the Exodus, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's a promise of God. He's not going to give you anything that you're not able to handle with his strength. With his strength. Of course, there's things we can't handle on our own, right? But the promise is that you will be able to endure whatever comes your way because God is sovereign. He is faithful. He loves you and he has a plan for you. And as long as you look to God and remember who he is and obey him, you can radically step out and joyfully do things that were once impossible, or at least you thought were impossible. So you have to, so you have to ask yourself as you insert yourself into this dark story, are you halfway obedient? Have you gone as far as you could when things were comfortable, but then pulled back the minute things got a little tough? I think it's still an issue to this day, is it not? Are you just living your life, going on about your busy life, that you've forgotten where you came from and who, what you're here for and who you're here for? I want you to see yourself in these stories, but beyond that, I want, to see yourself, I want you to see yourself in God's grand story, okay? Because he saved you, and the cross is the center of it all, and now he's empowering you to do things for his glory that will impact eternity. And this leads us to our second point today. Number two, break the patterns of sinful duplicity. In Judges 2, verses 11 through 23, we're going to see a pattern that is going to be repeated over and over again with God's people. And really, this whole, this whole book has two introductions. It has an introduction in chapter one, has another second introduction. This, the B-side introduction is in chapter two. Uh, I'm going to put this cycle up on the screen, and we're going to literally see this cycle not only played out in these verses, but we're going to see this cycle played out through all the rest of the chapters. This is a repeated pattern of behavior. The people rebel. God gets angry and judges sin. Oppression by the enemies. People cry out in repentance. Salvation comes through a chosen judge, peace, the judge dies, and repeat. Here we go again. All right, let's, let's read the text. I'll just, and I want you to look for these stages through these verses. Let's begin in verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. 
and they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after the gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods, bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments from the Lord, and they did not, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who, were, who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So there you go. Aren't you looking forward to that? <laughs> you have to put yourself in this. But that's the challenge. The challenge is, challenge is actually identify the same parallels and the same weaknesses that we all have in our own hearts. That's the first one. And even though we were given a glimpse of hope in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, you know, as soon as some of the people saw this, they wept, they cried out to God. When, when the author, the narrator, goes further into the B-side intro, intro, it ends with a much more depressing note about the spiritual state of God's people. Look at chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters, and they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This leads us up to the first judge, Othniel. That's where we'll pick it up next week. But that's not where we're going to end our message today. I'm not going to end it on that, okay? Can you say thank you for not ending it right there? <laughs> there's, there's still plenty here for us to check our hearts with. And there's three things in particular that I want to highlight. If you want to break the pattern of sinful duplicity, there's something that's mentioned in this text that you need to examine. And that first one is how you are speaking into the next generation. Did you notice it talking about the other generation after Joshua? Chapter 2, verses 10 through 11 describes a rebellion, and it had two stages. The first generation after Joshua knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. The, wor the word knew here probably doesn't mean 
that they didn't know about the Exodus. They would have had to know about that, right? I mean, their parents would have told them about Jericho and those things. They had to have known about it. But the saving acts of God were no longer precious or central to their lives. Like we talked about last week, there's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. They had, they had not experienced true faith in their God. And they had not learned to refer to God and to rejoice in what God had done and to, and, and to see what he had done. You know, in other words, in our times, they had forgotten the gospel. That's how you could describe this for us. That they were saved out of the bondage of sin. They forgot and they didn't know their God. Second, as a result of forgetting the goodness of God, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and they served Baals, verse 11. And it's always tough to know really what went wrong as one generation fails, as, as one generation doesn't receive the same faith or live out the same faith that their, their mothers and their fathers had. It's usually a mixed bag. Was it like the parents just blew it or was it the hard heart, in it, hard heart of the kid? I think it's a mixed bag of both. Mistakes made by a Christian generation are often magnified in the next generation. Commitment is then replaced by complacency and then by compromise. That's that stage downward cycle. But Judges 2 is by no means the last time this has happened. And it's always a threat. And if you want to backtrack for a minute here and go back to before, before any of this happened, God gave specific instructions to the people of Israel on what they needed to do with their kids to pass their faith on to the next generation. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and also verses 20 through 25, are very interactive right here. They, they, they fit perfectly right here with a solution for all of us who have kids or aspire to have kids or, or have grandkids. They tell us what we need to do to pass on our faith. Deuteronomy, verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6. Um, I'll go ahead and actually read that if you want to turn there really quick. Deuteronomy 6, 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So the first piece here is just love God wholeheartedly. Have these commands in our hearts and don't live hypocritically. I'm so thankful for my parents who loved Jesus. They weren't perfect by any means. They're sinners just like me and Julie are sinners, right? But I knew they loved Jesus. I could see that. There was a consistency there with their faith that they practiced on Sunday and their faith that they practiced Monday through Saturday. When I'm, uh, when I'm disciplining my kids, you know, it's not, it's not always easy. And I, a lot of times, to be honest, I find myself 
sometimes literally doing the exact same thing that I'm upset about them for and disciplining them for. Have, have you ever done that, parents? I had, I had one of these moments yesterday, believe it or not. Um, the boys were disrespectful for their mother, to their mother, and I was very upset about that. And in our family, one of the ways that we discipline uh, things that come out of your mouth that are ugly is we have them drink apple cider vinegar. I know some people love to drink apple cider vinegar on their own, and they're healthier than me, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for you. That's good. That's great. That's a great move. For us, it's like literally a discipline technique. And so um, the boys both had to drink apple cider vinegar. But here's the thing. I was so upset, I raised my voice. I was ugly to them at the same time. And I said, you know what, guys? I actually am not speaking well either. I'm going to drink apple cider vinegar with you. And it was bad, let me tell you. It was really bad. I feel really bad for them. They've drank a lot of it lately. And I probably need to drink some more too, to be honest. My point here is be consistent. Don't be hypocritical, right? We, we have to, to pass on your faith. You have to live it and be genuine about it. The next part here is apply the gospel and reflect on the gospel practically, not just when you sit down, but also when you walk in the way. So this isn't just an ab academic abstract thing, right, that you specifically have to have regimented into your schedule. And you know what? You should have some of that. Monday nights is right now, like in our, in our calendar right now, which is kind of full, the only night we have to really sit down and for sure have a family meal where we know we're not going to be running around at all is Monday night. Tuesday night, Thursday night, we come back from soccer. Wednesday night, we have life group. We have meals. We kind of, it's kind of hit or miss. But Monday night, we're going to have our family devotions on that night. And that's a specific time where we're going to open up the Bible together. But if it was just Monday night that we were doing family devotions, that'd be pretty weak, wouldn't it? So when I'm driving the boys to school in the morning, guess what we're talking about? We're talking about what's going on in their lives. And we're tying in the truth of the gospel. You're planting seeds. When, when you're going to the store and you're walking in and you're looking for clothes to buy, you can tie in biblical truth as you walk in the way, as you are going about your regular life. That's very important that you do that. And then you also have this third piece, verses 20 through 25 of Deuteronomy 6, that links the doctrines of faith to God's saving action in our lives. We should be giving personal testimony. Like we did this morning as, as we sang a few of our songs. Like, it was so great to hear that from Luke. Like, share specifically how God has changed you. How God is working on you right now. What are, what are your fears? What are your doubts right now? What is God doing? How is God communicating to you? Share that with other people. We need to hear that. We need to be encouraged and strengthened by hearing your testimony of what God's doing in your life. So when you put all this together, you could say it this way. This is a quote by Tim Keller. We must be consistent in behavior, wise about reality, and warmly personal in our faith. You do these things, and you are doing your part on passing your faith down to the next generation. Next one here, next piece that I want to show you about breaking the pattern of sinful duplicity is this whole component of, of God's plural. You know, one of the beauties that we're going to see in this book of Judges is the subtlety of the narrative. So in chapter 2, verse 19, we don't see that Israel just declared, I'm going to go worship another God. 
That's not how it works, right? I'm done with God. I'm just, I'm over him. I'm moving over here and I'm going to worship Ashtoreth now. That's not how it happened, right? They, they still worshipped God, right? He was still in their life to a certain degree. But they just added other gods. They added the gods of the people around them. And that was completely unfaithful to the Lord. This was, this was whoredom. This is, this, is, this is going against everything God has told them, verse 13. But there was not a decision to say, I'm checked out, I'm going over here. It was this gradual, subtle, oh yeah, I'll add that God into my life and that God. And see, the, the pagans that they lived with now that were surrounding them, they, they didn't give ultimate allegiance to one God. It was this plurality of God. So it was like, hey, we got the God of agriculture. We got the God of sex. We got the God of money and pleasure. Like they had all these other gods. So they just, it was like a build your own taco bowl kind of thing. It's just like, I'll throw in what I want, when I want. And, and I want this today. So I'll, I'll serve this God today and I'll worship this God today. It was not an all-exclusive one God that knows all, that is over all, that will strengthen you and, and fill you and empower you. It was this mixed bag that actually just wore them down. Are we like that? As we insert ourselves into the dark story, do we ever do that? Are there other gods, little g-gods, of pleasure, of business, of success, entertainment, sports. Like, are there other gods that take away your attention from being fully devoted to our loving God and our faithful God? You have to ask that question. The last point I want to make today is God's mercy of judgment. I know that's a weird concept, God's mercy of judgment. Stick with me here. God's judgment on his people's half-heartedness and their and, and, their, and their hardness of heart is found in Judges 2, verse 1. We read this verse already. But you catch what he said? I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. So the job will remain half finished. Notice God doesn't force his people into obedience. He doesn't also just drive out the Canaanites himself. Well, they failed. I'm just going to take over and sweep them out. No. They're actually left with them now. Instead, he uses the presence of the enemies to accomplish two things for Israel. Verse 22, I will use them to test Israel to see if they will keep the way of the Lord. So there's a test that everyone had now. And secondly, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, God used this to teach them through hardship. When Israel finally entered into the promised land under Joshua after 40 years of wandering in the desert, those people were hungry. Those people were passionate. They had learned to trust God and hold on to him and his promises. And they learned how to fight, right? Those are some amazing stories in the book of Joshua. Nowhere was that better seen than in Jericho, where God told his people to march around the city, but not to fight at all. And God granted them the victory. They just had to obey on that one, and that victory was done and over. And it's something, again, we'll see with Gideon. Very similar story. The action is going to pick up next week. Believe, believe it. 
Uh, it's going to be fast and it's going to be furious. But the narrator of this book is laying it out. Part of God's plan is his mercy to actually say, you know what? I'm going to actually bring you into some judgment right now because it's the only thing that's going to drive you on your knees to come to me. It's the only thing. This is how you're going to learn dependence on the Father. Those are your three pieces. Inserting yourself into this dark story isn't easy. These people are messy, and sometimes they're more than that, right? They're just plain bad, outright appalling. But the truth of the matter is, we have the same hearts. When we're honest with ourselves, we do. And we have to remember as a church that we were once liars. We were once thieves. We were once sexually immoral. We were broken, but God. But God shows his love towards us. And in closing, I would like you to turn to Titus chapter 3 with me. Titus chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 3 through 7. And we're going to see our faithful God. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. But we're not just inserting ourselves into a dark story, okay? What else are we doing? Here's the second challenge. The second piece of this is we are looking to the cross of Jesus Christ because that's where our hope is in. That's our hope. You can't read any of these stories in Judges without stopping and thinking, whoa, that would have been me. That used to be me. That could be me in the future if not for the grace of God sending Jesus Christ into this world to die on the cross for my sin. He paid the price of the penalty of my sin. I deserve death and judgment. I deserved all of these awful things that happened just like the people in Judges who turned their back on God. That could have been me too, but God, Jesus loves me. Jesus came and died for me. Jesus saves me. In all of our human flaws, all of our failures, yes, we see a reflection of ourselves here, but when we look up and we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, we have hope. It's not just a dark story. It's a dark story that turns into a bright story by the grace and the love and the faithfulness of God. have any questions about the topic of this sermon, or if you would like someone to follow up with you about applying this to your life, please reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.